Acts 21, verses 1 through 26. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Good morning. Welcome to Genesis. How are we doing today? It's good to, well, I would say good to see you. I can't see you up here. You guys are just like silhouettes out there, but we're, we're so glad you're hanging out. If you're a guest, this is your first time with us, we would love to, um, I would love to meet you at the end of the service. Um, we, we, at Genesis, one of the things that we, we do most of the time on our Sunday gatherings is we preach through books of the Bible. We start with the whole book and just preach all the way through, uh, through it, finding themes 
centering on the gospel of Jesus, showing us how everything leads us to Jesus. And we've been studying, had been studying for a long time this amazing story. Uh, Acts is a narrative, the story of uh, the gospel being spread around the world in the book of Acts. And we took a pause during the holiday season to do an Advent series, but now we're back to Acts, and we're going to be in Acts until um, just a few weeks before Easter, and we're going to get through this book, and we're going to keep, keep uh, working our way and, and seeing the beauty of what happens in this story. Uh, and, and so we're kind of picking it up again, and I'm excited to, to keep sharing and keep reading, keep interacting with this. A um, couple things as, as you think about our study of Acts. The first thing is this, that every week we, we publish and produce a family worship and a note sheet. So if you, you aren't picking this up or getting this, I just encourage you every week, we always put them out there, out there at the front table. You can grab one of those on the way in or on the way out. It's always a sheet that deals with the current week and what we're dealing with. And uh, it has some other things to help you with your walk with Jesus, your growth in the Lord. Uh, you know, there's a scripture reading plan on there. We also put um, our, our kids' lesson material and uh, the New City Catechism, which is a series of questions and answers about the things that we as followers of Jesus believe that you can use for yourself or with your kids. All kinds of good stuff on there, and that's out every week. The other thing we did is at the beginning of this series, we published a study guide on the book of Acts, and uh, I would encourage you to go find that on the Genesis blog, uh, and to access that today, there is uh, a little bit later this afternoon on Koinonia or tomorrow on the blog, there will be a new post that has a link to it. But the easiest way to do it is just go to blog.genesisurica.com, and then you can kind of do a search, find uh, our sermon thoughts, and, and you will pull up a, a blog that has a link to um, the uh, content from our, our study of Acts. It will just help you kind of reacquaint if you've been with us or if you're new with this, kind of get back into it. But um, this is a, an amazing moment in the story, and kind of what's central in this, I'm always amazed, even, even as we're reading the story again, as I'm sitting in here after spending the week kind of working through and studying as I'm reading it, how many things I would love to pause and spend a whole sermon just talking to you about. Uh, so many beautiful things that are happening in this story as God is accomplishing his mission. The, the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit accomplishing the purpose through his people of taking the gospel to the nations. It's written by this guy named Luke. Luke wrote two books. And we'll, this is going to be important in our study today. Luke wrote two books. The first one is called The Gospel of Luke. And it is the story of Jesus' life. It tells us the story of Jesus' birth. In fact, Luke gives us the most information that we use at Christmas time about the birth of Jesus, about his life, his ministry, uh, his teaching, uh, the fact that he kept teaching about the kingdom of God, and then his, his death, burial, and resurrection are central to the story of all the Gospels, especially Luke's Gospel. Uh, and, and so we have Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sin, which we've sung about this morning, three days later, rising again, defeating death, hell, and the grave forever. And as a Christian, this is the central focus of our faith. Um, in fact, I saw a tweet this week that said that Buddha's final words were keep striving. Jesus' final words were it is finished. And the difference between those two things makes all the difference in the world. We are not here today to announce to you a better way to live. We are here to tell you that in the Bible there is this amazing story of God's rescue and redemption for any and all people who will turn to Christ. If we will believe in him and understand that Christ has accomplished everything for our redemption, we can be rescued and redeemed. We are Jesus-loving, gospel-centered people. We love Jesus and what he did for us. And that's always our central message. But Luke then writes a second book that starts right after Jesus rose again and takes us through the first 30 years of Christian history. And his goal is to show us the spread of this message. People who love Jesus, who are taking this message all around the world, and it leads to a gospel-preaching church planting mission. Acts 1-8 gives us the outline of Acts. So Acts 1-8 tells us the whole story of Acts is going to be told about the, the, the planting of the gospel, the spread of the church in Jerusalem, which is the, the central city. It's the capital city of Israel. It, Jerusalem, which is front and center in this story, is where the Jews, uh, the, the, the most like Hebraic, old school Jewish people in the world live at that time. 
Then to Judea, which is kind of the region around it. It'd be kind of like saying St. Louis and then the St. Louis metropolitan area. He talks about the gospel going to, the, to Samaria, which is the gospel for the first time crossing cultural and, and social and racial boundaries as the gospel is taken to a group of people that most Jews hated and despised. But now these uh, first believers are going to take the gospel to the Samaritans and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so what's happened in the second half of Acts, what we've studied for weeks, is this guy named Paul who Christ saved gloriously has been on these journeys. He has done three massive missionary journeys, taking the gospel, preaching Christ in cities, and planting churches. Uh, so, So he preaches, people come to believe in Jesus. As he preaches, there are Jews and Gentiles, people who normally wouldn't have anything to do with each other in the culture, are now brought together and and they form a church and they are a new community of faith. And Paul then would move on to another city, the next city, to do it again. But he leaves in that city these churches who are now gospel outposts, kingdom outposts. They are representatives of Christ, his beauty, his kingdom, to proclaim the gospel and make him known in that city. And that's who we are. I am not Paul. I'm just a, a, a guy that God called to plant and lead a church with a team of elders and leaders so that we can be a, a missionary culture who loves Eureka well for the glory of God. And we're put here with the gospel. And, and so what happens in the New Testament is this uh, just gets reproduced over and over again. Paul travels through what is modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece and plants the gospel, preaches Christ in every major urban center in the known world at that point in time. And he has left a trail of dozens upon dozens of churches and thousands upon thousands of of new believers in Jesus, and the gospel is taking root and spreading like wildfire in these areas. And he did this over three of these huge, beautiful missionary journeys, which are covered from about Acts 13 through Acts 20. Now we're picking up in Acts 21 because what's happening is Paul is returning to Jerusalem. And this chapter, the beauty of this text, what we're going to talk about this morning, is the importance of God's will in our life. Because there's a really curious thing that happens as you read this text. And the curious thing that happens is on one level, Paul we are told, has heard the voice of the Spirit who has told him that he must go to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, we see multiple people and a couple groups who, by the voice of the Spirit, are telling Paul he shouldn't go. Now, is the Holy Spirit, is God now confused? Is he freaking out, going, like, like is God kind of schizophrenic and going, Go, don't go, go, don't go. Like, I don't know what I want you to do, Paul. Figure it out on your own. Is that what God's doing? And we know absolutely not. God is sovereign. He is good. We've sung these songs that remind us of this. He is the Lord of everything. But there is something beautiful about God's will that shows up in the text, and that's what I want to show you this morning. How do you wrestle and discern God's will for your life? If, if you're new to the faith, this may be, you know, a new idea of, uh, listen, I'm supposed to live for God's will. Uh, if you have been walking with Jesus for a while, it may be a question you've answered several times. How do you find, discern, and know what God's will for your life is? Can we hear the voice of the Spirit? Does God still speak, or did God kind of finish talking when the Bible is closed, and now he's just hanging out and leaving us to ourselves? What we get from this text is that God speaks to us clearly, but there's some things that we need to learn about what it looks like to know God's will. How do you know God's will? I I think uh, uh, there's a lot of ways we we think. uh, I was watching Big Bang Theory. Any Big Bang Theory fans out here? I kind of like that show if you've never watched. It's kind of funny, kind of weird, a bunch of nerds. But there's one episode where Sheldon, who's kind of one of the main characters, starts making every decision with a roll of dice. He's sitting there trying to decide. uh, He's at a table trying to decide what he's going to have for dinner. And he rolls the dice and it comes up something he hates, but he orders it anyway because the dice told him to do it. Then a little later, he's hoping to be, be able to get a hot fudge sundae. And he rolls the dice and... Hot fudge Sunday, yes, you know, and he's making all his decisions. Or, or maybe you've tried like this. The, the, remember the magic eight ball? Anybody have one of those? Shake it up, pull it up, you know, whatever it says. Is that how we find God's will? Believe it or not, earlier, in, even in Acts, they are casting lots, which is very similar to rolling dice, to discern God's will. But that actually happens before God sends the Holy Spirit 
We don't ever see that in Scripture after there. It's not a game of chance. The, the will of God is something in the, in the Scriptures that God is speaking to his people. But how do we know it? Or, or maybe it's like Google Maps. It'd be awesome if it was that way, right? Just plug the phone in, you're driving down, and, and the will of God is going, all right, turn this way, go this way, uh, follow this, this, you know, and we're going to get you there, we're going to have you do this. I, I had this, this former teenager who said it was his desire to put the, the MAPS program, like to, to put his voice into the MAPS program so that he could, you know, use the MAPS program to teach his wife that she needed to follow everything that he said. It's like, dude, that don't work. <laughs> Yeah, we just reason one for her to go, nope, ain't going that way, right? You know? uh, and, and that's what we do with maps. Like, it, dudes, you know this. You're driving and Google Maps is telling you where to go. And we go, but I know another way. And what's beautiful about Google Maps is Google Maps will then go, rerouting. We're going to take you. You've decided you're not going my way. We're going to find a different way for you. Uh, is that the way the will of God works? It, it's suggestions about the way to go. And if we decide I'm going to go a different way because I have a better plan, God will reroute our map. Maybe that's how we decide God's will. Or, or maybe it's just kind of blind fate, kind of hoping uh, that everything will work out. You know, everything works, it happens for a reason kind of stuff. Uh, how do we find God's will? I, I, is it a map? You know, are we, we pray and say, God, give me a map so I know the destination. I can figure out where I'm going and, and over a period of time figure out how to get there. We've been working on a family vacation and thinking about this. And we've been laying out this map going, how do we get there? And where are we going to stop and all this? Is that God's will? Is God going to give us like this plan that gets us 15 years out in the future and we can start charting our course? And we, like you should know, it, it doesn't work that way. I actually think the will of God, what the Bible's going to teach us is that following and knowing the will of God is really more like a compass. It's having a compass in our hand. I don't know if it was, you were like this, but I remember the first time I got a compass, I thought the thing was broken. Because I kept trying to point it in the direction I wanted to go and the arrow wouldn't go the right way. Right? I'm trying to figure this out. It keeps going that way, but I want to go this way. I didn't quite get it, and then I learned, and we got involved, had a couple of experiences where we took a group of, like, teenagers on this thing called orienteering, okay? The whole idea of orienteering is we're going to drop you in the middle of the woods. We're going to give you a compass and a map and several places you're supposed to find, and uh, there's, like, four or five of those teenagers are, like, 42, and they're still lost in the woods somewhere. We never found them. You know, that, that idea of doing this. And what happens is you grab it and you think the map is the most important thing. But the truth of the matter is the map is meaningless unless you figure out how to use the compass. And what has to happen is you have to figure out that the whole idea of the compass with that map in your hand is that you have to figure out that the compass is always going to try to point north. And you have to line the little, you know, line the little line with north. And that will tell you with your map in hand where everything else is. But without the compass properly calibrated, pointing in the right direction, if you don't figure out where true north is, if you try to make the compass something where it points in the direction you want to go, it will never work and you will end up lost in the woods. Right? And I think for a lot of us, this is our problem. That what we want to do is we want a will of God that lets me set the direction of my life, and then God goes, I'm going to help you out with this. We're going, to, we're going to bless your plans. We're going to make it work. Instead of understanding what Jesus said clearly, what we have in this passage is this crazy moment where Paul, on one level, keeps hearing the voice of the Spirit say, you must go to Jerusalem. And meanwhile, other people are saying, but if you go to Jerusalem, you are going to get harassed. You're going you're to get arrested there, Paul. It's going to go really bad. And my guess is, most of us would hear the voice of the other people going, man, you don't want to go where it's hard. You don't want to go where it's difficult. You don't want to go get arrested for your faith. We would go, that must be a sign that I misheard God. I'm not going. But Paul is resolved to go to Jerusalem. What is this text teaching us about following Jesus? I think it teaches a lot. I think this text is a living out of something that happens in Luke. In, in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus' story is being told, Jesus says something. There are two things that Jesus says that show up in Luke chapter 9 that become super important. The first one here, I believe, is true north. I believe it is where Jesus is saying, here's how you calibrate your compass. 
If you want to know the will of God, you want to understand what it looks like to, to follow Jesus, you want to look like, figure out what it looks like to trust in him, here's what it looks like to make sure that that compass has north as its direction so you know what it looks like to follow Christ. And he says it in this, Jesus is talking in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, he's speaking to his disciples, and here's what he says. Jesus says this, and he said to all, if anyone, notice the words all and anyone, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would ha- save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will, will save it. Did you hear that? Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. Because if you want to save your life, you're going to end up losing it. If you wanna, it. But if you're willing to lose your life, is that, that is the way to actually finding it. Now, now, here's what I want the verse to say. I want Jesus to stand up and say, if anyone would come after me, let him fulfill his potential, chase after his dreams daily, and follow his heart or her heart, right? Whatever achieves fulfillment, and whoever lives their true identity will find that that is all that they need in this life. That's what I wanted to say. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, die to yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me, and then do that again tomorrow. It's a daily walk of recalibrating our compass to true north because here's the central issue. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, here's the central issue in our humanity. I want the compass line to point the way I want to go. I want Jack Sparrow's compass. Now, if you're not familiar with that, that's from Pirates of the Caribbean. He gets a compass that points the direction of the thing he wants the most. I want Jack Sparrow's compass. I don't want Jesus' compass. I don't want a compass that where I am looking and saying, okay, how do I know which way to go? How do I, I, I deny myself, I take up my cross and follow Jesus. And then I wake up tomorrow morning and I do that again. This is what happens in the text. And so what happens is the story of Acts now we have Christ who has gone to the cross for us. The story of Acts is showing us, and Paul becomes this beautiful image and picture of this. What's happened in Acts is that Paul has been on this third major missionary journey, and now he feels compelled to go to Jerusalem. The reason he feels compelled to go to Jerusalem is because he has been going through these cities in Greece and in Asia, uh, modern-day Turkey and Greece, and, and he has asked these churches to collect an offering because the mother church in Jerusalem, the first church in Acts, the place where Christianity all starts, is hurting. Believers there are suffering because there's a famine going on in the Middle East, especially around Israel. But on top of that, because these people are trusting Jesus, they're being marginalized. Families are disowning their kids uh, or pushing their, their mom and dad out of the family because they've trusted in Jesus. They're losing jobs. They are hurting. The, the, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem are suffering persecution in a time where things are already tough. And so Paul has been going to these churches going, you have to be generous. I know you don't know these people, but they are your Christian family. And, and these Gentile churches primary Gentile. There are some Jews in every church, but these churches who are exploding among Greek and, and, and Roman people are now in these churches. And he's, he has looked at all these churches going, listen, I need you to be generous. I need you to share w- joyfully. If you want to see where this shows up, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, where most churches, when they do like a capital campaign, will run to this and show what God's plan for giving. But very specifically, Paul is telling these churches to be generous to these, this church in Jerusalem. And now he's got this huge offering from at least eight or ten different churches. In each church, they sent a Gentile believer with Paul to take the money to bless these people in, in Jerusalem. And Paul has felt like the Spirit has been telling him. Why does he feel this? He has been calibrating his compass and feeling the call of God has been saying to him, take this money to Jerusalem yourself. God has been saying, I have a purpose in this. I have a reason for this. Sure, anybody else could have taken it, but Paul feels like the Spirit has been telling him to go. 
But what's happening in the storyline is that Luke, the author, is doing something as well. Luke is doing something that's actually incredible and beautiful. You, you realize that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. There's not wasted words. And God has chosen for his glory and our joy to make himself known when we open the scriptures and read it. And sometimes you gotta kinda mine and dig and you gotta have people help you find these hidden nuggets. But it's actually here. Because what Luke is making incredibly clear is that Paul is compelled to follow the footsteps of Jesus. That's what's going on here. See, in Luke 9, 51, there's a verse about our Savior. He is as far away from Jerusalem at any point in time as he will ever be. But he, there's this verse in Luke 9, 51, where it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, what's the setting of his face? Jesus knows what awaits him. He understands that this trip, he's been to Jerusalem a bunch of times in his life, but this trip is different. Because in this trip, he is going to walk through many towns, and we're going to see people who, who celebrate him and people who reject him side by side. And every step of the way, it's going to become more and more obvious to Jesus that this ends with him on the cross, him giving his life for us. And Jesus sets his face. Three times in a journey, he looks at his disciples, and he says, let me explain what's happening here, fellas. I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders, and they are going to crucify me, but three days later, I'm going to rise again. Three times his disciples deflect that. They either go, no, that's not going to happen. Peter either actually stands up face to face and says, no way that we're going to let that happen, Jesus. And other times they get into arguments over who's the greatest in the kingdom. Three times they ignore what he says, completely miss it, while Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. But they're along for the ride. They end up in Jerusalem and Christ set his face to get there. And now we have Paul, who again feels this compelling drive the Spirit is telling me I must go three times. We have him saying things about the fact that I know what's going to happen. I know what's, where this lands. I know where this is going. Three times Paul looks at this, and at the same time, through the Spirit, he has these voices who keep looking at him going, but if you go there, but if you go there. And Paul goes, I know. He tells us in, in Acts 19, he's resolved to take this offering to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, uh, he, he talks about the fact that it is his desire to be there before Pentecost, this Jewish celebration. And in Acts 20, verses 20 through 24, we hear Paul, the, the text, this is Paul speaking to these elders in Ephesus. And he says, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as of any value, nor precious to myself, if only I may finish the course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. Listen, what's going on in this text, in this story, is that Luke, who is writing, who's a masterful writer, inspired by the Spirit, is showing us that Paul has the same resolve Jesus does. He has, he has set his compass to deny, die, follow, do it again tomorrow, even if it's tough even if it costs me my life, it will be worth it to follow Jesus because if you preserve and protect and defend your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for the cause of Christ, you, you will find it. That's what's happening. And this whole text we have today that has this crazy plan of, of Paul going from with this entourage. Like he's got a whole crew of people and most of them are Gentile, travel all over the place, they, but they're on their way to Jerusalem. And all along the way, there are these warnings. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you because what we see is Paul, two examples in this story of Paul following the will of God 
laying his rights and his, his own will down to make sure that he has at the center of his focus the, the glory and the beauty and the hope of Christ. And because he does this, he knows what the Spirit is saying to him. I believe wholeheartedly that what's happening here is true for anybody who's walking with Jesus in this way. That you will know what God is saying when it's time to hear what he has to say if our compass is calibrated. The reason most of us don't hear the voice of God is because what we want God to do is affirm the direction we've already set for ourselves. But when we deny ourselves, take, listen to words of Jesus. And so what happens is, is we, we get Paul on the way to Jerusalem. I'm going to point out some things here about what happens, pull some principles, and then I want to run to uh, when he gets to Jerusalem because there's this crazy weird story with him and James and this stuff that he has to do there. But there's something beautiful that is in the same lane of what we're talking about here. And we're going to show what it looks like for us to know and follow and do the will of God by looking at the example that we have in Scripture of Paul following the footsteps of Jesus. And here's the, here's the big idea. This is how we know the will of God. Set the compass follow the footsteps of Jesus in our life. It looks different. Not, like for most of us, this does not mean that we're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem starting tomorrow. But it does mean that we need to figure out what it looks like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Follow him, right? And so what happens is, is on the way to Jerusalem, the story picks up with Paul on a boat, right? He's on a boat. And, and he starts up here in this area that is um, called, uh, uh, it's near Ephesus, this area that is, uh, he ends up on an island called Miletus over here, right there. You see, this is modern-day Turkey right here. And here is um, uh, uh, modern-day Greece. And, and for those of you who are watching online, I know you can't see my pointer, but uh, we're looking at the red area that is Asia right here uh, in the middle there. Uh, Paul hops on a boat, and what we see is Luke with very detailed travel plans. They hop on a boat, and they go a little ways to another city, go a little ways to another seaport. When they get to this seaport, they're in shallow water. They have to get on a big boat. When they hop on a big boat over here, they, they, they take off and they go by Cyprus. This is a beautiful, beautiful view right here. One of the people who've sailed it say it's one of the most beautiful places to see in the world in the ocean. But they end up over here on the coastline where Israel is. Uh, all the way to the right down here is Judea, if you see that. Jerusalem's at the bottom. And what's going to happen is going to go from town to town to town, uh, couple of them by boat. He's going to hop on a boat and then go down a little further south on another boat a week later. Uh, and then he gets all the way down eventually and he makes his way to Jerusalem. And that's what the first few verses are telling us here. Verses 1 through 6 just tell us of the towns he goes to and how he gets there. But he gets to the city of, of uh, uh, Troas there. Uh, I'm sorry, of Tyre there. And when he gets to the city of Tyre, they go find a church. Now, the language of the text says they didn't know any Christians there. But what they do is they go seek out a body of believers because they need to be with the people of God while they're in town. They got about a week while they're going to unload and reload this boat. They're going to go hop on a boat. The boat's going to go south to, to the other seaport called Caesarea. So they're going to wait. And while they're in town, they're going to hang out with Christians. They're going to find fellow believers and be with them. And, but while they're there, in verse 4, we're told that by the Spirit... These people who didn't even know Paul, they don't even know this entourage of Gentile people who are with them, are telling him by the Spirit, if you go, it's not going to go good. And then you have these people who start weeping and struggling because they're not sure what to do with that. He goes a little further south, he ends up in Caesarea, we have this whole, they're going to hang out with Philip, he's, he's one of the seven people that are in Acts 6 that are chosen by the church to lead this widow, ministry to widows, but he becomes this, this evangelist who just shares Christ everywhere. He ends up living on this seaport town. He's got four daughters. Luke includes this detail, and it's kind of like, what do we do with this? And I'm like, I don't know, but he's got these four daughters who prophesy. Here's the one thing I will tell you. There is beauty of women who are speaking on behalf of God and doing ministry that shows up right here in the text. Ladies, we need you. We need you to exercise your gift. We need you to, 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 to find God's purpose and call on your life. There's beauty in this moment there. But what happens is that this weird dude named Agabus, who is like this Old Testament type prophet, like he, he goes all weird Old Testament. He comes to Paul. He grabs Paul's sash, like his belt. It's, this, it's not like a belt that's holding up my pants. It's, it's this cloth thing that they would wrap around. They actually would use, like they would form a pocket and they would put money in the pocket. And they would use it for all kinds of things. 
as they wore robes. He takes this sash and he ties his own hands, ties his own feet, binds them together. So he's laying there like an upside down turtle looking at Paul going, this is what's going to happen to the dude who owns this belt if he goes. And you have these people now are weeping, going, no, don't go. We don't want this bad stuff to happen. And Paul eventually goes, listen, this weeping, I I love you all, thank you. But I know what the Spirit has told me to do. And I must follow the Spirit. Now, let me tell you what this verse is not good for. This passage is not good for, well, I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to do what I want to do. We have enough passages that tell us that if you're going to take this type of stand and pursue the will of God in spite of counsel, you better make sure you're really walking with Jesus well. Yet, there is a sense in which what Paul is doing here is he has heard what the voice has said clearly to him. Now, has the Spirit given two sets of counsel? And the answer is no. The answer is no. The word is consistent. When Paul hears the Spirit speak, the Spirit, however he hears it, we're not told how he heard it. We don't know if he had a vision, a dream, it's just an inner inclination. But the Spirit has made clear that he's supposed to go with this group of people and he is supposed to get to Jerusalem. But that all the way he goes, there's going to be hardship and even imprisonment. He now has multiple people who have looked at him and said, we feel like the Spirit is saying that if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem, when you get there, it, it, it's, it's going to go sideways. You're, you're going to get arrested and you're going to get handed. And then we you know, have this guy who literally says, the Jews are going to hand you over to the Gentiles. You're going to be in jail. And at that point, if you're in, like you're Paul's buddies, you're hanging out with them, you're this traveling crew going, I don't know that I signed up for this. All right, I guess we're going. And all these people who love Paul are crying, oh, we, don't, we don't want this to happen to you. It's not uncommon. It's the response of we don't want you to go is not an issue. It's what is the Spirit saying? And the Spirit is saying the same thing to both Paul and the people who see him. It's just that they, with their emotions, are going, I don't know if you should go. Meanwhile, Paul is going, I know the Lord has called me. I have to obey what God has said. I'm going to deny myself take up my cross, I'm following Jesus, and I'm getting to Jerusalem because this is what the Lord has compelled me to do. It's kind of like this guy named John Patton. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the uh, late 1800s. This was an area in the South Pacific that was known for the fact that there was a lot of people who practiced cannibalism. In fact, 20 years before he went, 20 years before he went, uh, there were a pair of missionaries who tried to take the gospel there and it did not go well for them. Uh, they ended up being dinner and, and, and had lost their lives as martyrs with no fruit, um, but were cannibalized. And so um, here's this guy who's going, he, he lives in uh, Wales, and he goes, I, I'm going to take the gospel uh, to, I'm sorry, he lives in Scotland, not Wales, Scottish missionary who says, I'm going to take the gospel to these islands. And you have all these people going, do you know what's going to happen to you there? You know what's going to like, like if, if you go there, like, we don't want you to go because, like, we, we don't want your life to end that way. We know what happens in this journey. And he's going, but I know the Spirit's telling me to go. And this guy named Mr. Dixon just said, listen, you're going to get eaten by cannibals. Listen to what he says. He says, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced of years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there and be eaten by worms. I confess to you, if I can but live or die serving and, and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Lord and Savior and our Redeemer. Doesn't matter to me if I get eaten by worms or eaten by cannibals but I have to go. Now you can understand people clinging and being sad as he's feeling this call. This is what's happening in this story. It's not that the Spirit's saying something different. It's that the responses of the people in the story are responding differently to what the Spirit's clearly saying. 
You can understand this if you're a parent and your, your kids go, listen, I feel like I'm supposed to go overseas. I'm just supposed to go preach the gospel in a hard place. If I'm, I'm supposed to go live my life here. And you're like, that's a long way away and those people don't get it and I, I don't know what to do. And you, you'll be clinging, but at the same time, the freedom to look at our children and go, listen, this is the best and highest calling. And I've been with parents who literally, their kids felt compelled to go to a Christian school where they could prepare for ministry and mission. And the parents are looking at them going, no, what we want for you is for you to get a good degree, to get a good job, to be prosperous, to live the American dream. Christian parents who fought this call in their kids' lives. Who needed to recalibrate their compass. This is how you know the will of God. This is what happens in the beauty of this story. Paul understands that finding and knowing the will of God is, is pursuing Jesus to, to reorient our lives so that we are not the center, that, that the question is not what is God's will for my life, but what is God's will in living in the center of what he is doing, what he is calling us to do. I think this is how we hear the voice of God. In fact, Henry Blackaby, who wrote a book called, or wrote, it's actually a study that has turned into a book called Knowing, or Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God, talks about this in his book where he says this. He says, what is God's will for my life is not the best question to ask. The better inquiry is what is God's will because people are naturally self-centered and we tend to view the whole world, even God's activity, in terms of our own lives. Of course, we want to know what we should do and how events will affect us. But that is actually an inverted life perspective. Once I know God's will, then my life gains its proper perspective. And I can adjust my life to him and to his purposes. In uh, other words, what is it that God is pers- uh, purposing to accomplish where I am? Once I know what God is doing, then I see what I should do. My focus needs to be outward on God and his purpose is not inward on my life. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said. I I, want to know God's will. I want to hear the voice of God in my life. It starts with us understanding that if I am at the center of my whole existence, it's just not going to happen. But when when I begin to pursue God and his will... When I put him at the center of my, my pursuit, when I lay down my life. Now, what does this look like? It looks like at some point in time, major decisions, I have to figure out what it looks like to, to, to put his purpose and plan at the center. For most of us, though, it means just waking up tomorrow morning going, my life is not my own. I am his. And whatever he desires, what he, whatever he purposes, his glory, his fame is central to my existence, not my own identity and dreams. Because whoever protects his own life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. This is a good thing. When following Jesus is hard and we lay down our lives and trust in Christ, the promise is that we will get Jesus and we will find grace. It's what's happening with Paul. And his whole life has been this. So going to Jerusalem is just a new stage in this journey of going, I get Jesus when I follow him. Now, it's really weird. He gets to Jerusalem, and verses 15 to 7 tell us this weird story, starting this weird story where, where what happens to Paul is when he gets there, uh, they, they've made this journey, they've gotten all the way to this, this capital city of Jerusalem. Verse 15 says, and, <clears throat> In those days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manas, or Manasson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge, and then we, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. And greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, we read that, and it just sounds like, all right, we went here, and then we went here, and then they received us, they were buddies with us. You don't realize how radical what just happened is. Because Paul, who is a Jew's Jew, former Pharisee, is traveling with an entourage of non-Jewish people. And they march into Jerusalem together. Jews don't, like, see that well. This is, this is not something that in, in normal culture is going to mix. It's not something you do. And they show up, and what happens is this, this 
Christian leader named Paul, who they know, with these Gentile Christians from all these churches come into Jerusalem, and what we see is the Jerusalem church immediately hugging them and loving them and weeping with them and receiving them and accepting them and finding joy in what God is doing in the lives of people who didn't grow up like them, who don't look like them, who have different skin color, who have different eye tones, who have speak different languages, who have different access. They, they are, uh, it's amazing the reception they get in Jerusalem. This is something only the Spirit can do. And they're received. And Paul then, in the middle of this crowd that has James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who is now the, the key pastor, the key leader in the Jerusalem church, and the elders, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, starts telling the stories of three missionary journeys and how we just kept seeing God at work Lives changed, people forgiven, the gospel true, Christ sufficient. They'd been sent out with a letter because the first question that happened way back when was when a Jewish person or a Gentile person becomes a Christian, do they have to become Jewish? And, and the conclusion was no. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law, but there are a few things they should do. They need to avoid sexual immorality. They need to avoid meat sacrifice to idols in, in deference to their Jewish brothers, who that would be a hard thing for them. And, and, and so the, the beauty here is how they received, as Paul tells the story, and this Jewish, really, really, really Jewish church in Jerusalem is celebrating the work of God while they're loving their brothers and accepting them. But there is a problem. And the problem here is that Paul showing up in Jerusalem creates a little tension because he's known now. His reputation of leaving Jerusalem, hanging out with Gentiles, and even pushing to not make G Gentiles become Jews is known. And so there are Christians in the city, lots of Christians in the city who are still obeying and what, like they still go to the temple. They still try to follow the Jewish cult culture and heritage. They're, they're just living as seeing Christ as the fulfillment of their religious system and heritage as Jews. And so they're still zealous for the laws, what it says. Meanwhile, the whole city is, uh, you know, going to look at Paul and his group of people with incredible skepticism. And here's what's its, it, 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 its center here, is that James stands up and looks at Paul and goes, bro, I need you to lay down your rights. I need you to do this crazy thing where you go with these three dudes who have taken this Nazarite vow, go into the temple, go through the purification rites that Jews are supposed to go through when they come back to Jerusalem when they've been gone for a while, and then pay, you pay, let everybody see you pay their fees. They're offering as they come to the end of this vow and actually he's paying to get them a haircut. They're going to shave their head and it's this whole ritual that Paul actually did earlier in the story. But what's happening here is that he is at this moment where does he submit to James, who's the leader of this local church, or does Paul stand up and go, what? now wait a minute. Listen, I'm writing, I'm writing scripture, bro. I'm an apostle. Nobody's telling me what to do. I have my rights. I know what the Bible is teaching us about our Judaism. Don't you tell me what to do. What we, what we see is Paul doing the same thing. For the cause of the unity of the church in this city, and for the sake of the gospel, Paul willingly submits himself to what James asked him to do and walks through this purification rite which to us seems weird, but it's, the, it's Paul doing the same thing. He had to get to Jerusalem, but once he gets here, what's he do? He denies himself, takes up his cross, and he follows Jesus, knowing that Jesus loves his church and loves this city, and the most important thing is the unity of the church, the advance of the gospel. There are times where what this looks like in our life is that for the cause of unity in the body, we lay down our rights and love each other. For the good of the gospel to our city, we may not do things that we, we, we feel comfortable doing. Like, these are the central things. If, if we're laying down our rights, the, the good of the, the body of Christ and the gospel to our city are the most important things in our life. And that's all that's happening here. It's Paul doing the same thing. Just now, it looks a little bit different because he's gonna submit to James and do what he's been asked to do for the cause of the gospel. So what does this say to all of us? 
Well, let me just close by saying that, that the central message of this whole text is that you can know the will of God. You can hear the voice of God. It looks different in different people's lives, but the way to know it is that we have to figure out how to calibrate that compass. We have to make sure we're pointed true north in our life. You're not gonna know what God's saying to you. You're not gonna pursue the will of God as long as you have that compass in your hand and you want that compass to point in the direction that you want to go. It is following the footsteps of Jesus where we can know what God is saying to us. And what we end up with is verse after verse after verse in the Bible that says, when you're walking that way, you will hear what the Lord is saying. It, most of the time, it's just daily getting up in the morning and, and following Jesus. Sometimes it is, it is major life decisions and making sure we're basing those on trusting Jesus with the huge things. For those of you who are younger in this crowd, it is really starting to orient your life so that you can say, man, what am I supposed to do with my life? And don't make your decisions based on the American dream. Make your decisions on making much of Christ for his fame, for his, live for that. Because if you try to protect your life when you were middle school and high school, you will lose it. But if you give away your life for the cause of Christ, you, you will find it. It's a promise from Jesus pursue him and do it with your whole life and whatever he leads you go for some it may mean that you go to hard places with the gospel for others it may mean that you end up in business world or, or being a teacher in a school or whatever but but you were there because christ has led you and he's going to use you and his purpose is central and for those of us who maybe we're not making those decisions but it may be reorienting the way you see your own job your own journey your own relationship with your family your, your own stuff and for some of us in here it is this simple if you are still trying to figure out what it means to trust in jesus it is god's will for you to be saved jesus died for you trust him run to him because even if it means giving up your own life, it is so worth it. Forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and all these sort of things. That song we sang, to be known and loved. Like, that's what we all need. And it is true. So the call this morning, as the band comes up, we're going to sing a couple songs. The beauty of, of the fact that we spend a few minutes worshiping at the end of every sermon is because the idea is that we need to come back and we need to respond. All of us need to respond to what Christ has said to us. There need to be a lot of people who see this image of a compass and say, all right, today I'm finding true north. And if you're here today and, and like this is all hard for you, we would love to pray with you. If you have things that are, you have pains and hurts and struggles that are real in your life, we will have people down here um, by, behind these speakers at the end of the service who would love to have a conversation with you and pray with you. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ with your life, I just want to tell you, we would love to have that conversation with you and tell you what it means to follow and trust in Jesus for the first time. And so, so don't hesitate to come and let us pray and talk to you, um, and, and we'd love to have that conversation. But for all of us in here today, let's wrestle with, with like, look at Paul's example, see how he was following Jesus' mission and wrestle with what that means for our life starting now. And then let us sing to him with joy because he has already promised he will do it. Lord, we love you today. Praise you for your grace and mercy and for the, the beauty in this story. Lord, I, I'm just like, I get overwhelmed at the glory of inspiration that this stuff is in the scriptures and you have like so beautifully made yourself known in the Bible. And, and, and so today we just ask that you will take what is in this story and elsewhere in the text of Scripture and apply it to our lives and help us know the will of God in our lives today. And we're thankful that you hear our prayers and answer. In your name I pray, amen.